0: Thanks for tuning into a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in DC, we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of DC, we would love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in, where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Good evening, Redemption Hill. All right. Good evening. My name is Bill Rydell. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to worship with you tonight. i grateful for the chance to be together. and. It's a little muggy in here, but uh, hopefully the cool breeze from the back windows will will help us through the night. Um, Let's pray together, and we're going to jump right into the text. Oh, one announcement, um, in addition to what Pastor Chewie had to say. If you're a member of Redemption Hill, uh, just a reminder, we sent out, we're in um, our budgeting season, so we sent out a draft of the annual financial plan, and tomorrow night there is a members' interest meeting for those who are interested. Um, It will be here at 7 o'clock, probably in the Fellowship Hall, and so um, if you're interested to come and join us, let us know by RSVP on CCB. Um, but now let's pray, and we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you that, that you're present with us, that you promise us your presence by your Spirit, and we plead with you now to move by your Spirit in our hearts, because that's our only hope, that we can find hope and have our eyes opened and, and see you for who you are today. So we pray that you would move we pray that you would you would open our eyes and turn our affections toward Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I've had this experience often as a pastor, and I don't know this may be familiar to you. For some of you, it may not be. But but when somebody comes up to you and and or will come to me and say to me, "Hey, God told me to say this to you." Have you guys ever had that happen? That can be a weird experience because I'm never quite sure. Now, there are times when somebody's told me that and they've come up and they've had something encouraging or uplifting or something insightful that, that it really feels like maybe God was bringing me a message, but it can also be a jarring statement a little bit because you can wonder at times, like, like how, how do you know and what did you hear? Was it an impression that you had that you felt like you should say something? Was it an audible voice that you heard? Was, was there a bush that was on fire in this experience? Like We see in Scripture times when God spoke to people directly, but what does that mean? And, and at times it can be legitimate, where someone can see or meet a need, or a physical or emotional need, and, and meet somebody in a place where they had no reason on their own to know, it, and God's Spirit can move that way, and, and we can see God's hand in directing our lives, whether it's in, in relationships, or in careers, or in places we live, or schooling, or ministry life. But sometimes I feel like it also kind of becomes a Christian catchword, a Christian catchphrase, It makes it like an unchallengeable way to express what you would like to do because if God told you to do it, then who are we to challenge it? Here's the thing, though, is my fear as your pastor is that the difficulty of understanding how the Spirit works and how God speaks to us and and how in the ambiguity of what it means to follow the Spirit of God may make it more often so that it leaves too many of you and too many Christians outside of the experience of the Spirit of God moving in our lives. Not from a lack of desire. I mean, most of us, when we look at our lives, we can look back and see how our lives were orchestrated and uh, our paths were laid out for us so that we've gotten to certain places and we can, we can see God's hand in our lives looking back. But, but I wonder how often you feel presently and currently and actively led by the Spirit of God. And so tonight, I think our text can help us with that. We're starting the fourth section of the book of Acts. Um, If you were here last week, you know that we just finished the third section of the book of Acts last week. Um, We initially had thought about bumping this part to the fall, but we've moved it up and we're going to cover it um, over the next... Few, several weeks and, and jump right into it as we close out this book. And so in Acts so far, we saw at the very beginning that the, the Spirit of God was poured out, that Jesus Christ was raised from death to life, that he ascended to the heavens, and his Spirit filled his people. And, and so we, we saw the beginnings of the early church. And then we saw that that extended as the word spread through Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the region, and the Spirit of God was moving to advance the word of God throughout the region. And we, then the third section shows us the advance of the word of God to the ends of the earth, as we see the nations brought in as, people, as God's Spirit was crossing all kinds of barriers and, and going outside of the region and the nation of Israel. And now we begin... The fourth and final section of this book, and we see that the story continues. And so this is a lens that focuses in pretty heavily on the Apostle Paul and his ministry and the end of his ministry, and so that's what we're going to cover over the next several weeks. And so tonight we begin with Acts chapter 21. If you have a Bible, you can open it up with me to Acts chapter 21, and it will also be on the screens behind me. And so this is what we read together. When we had parted from them and had set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there was a ship, for the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem." When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our, our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles." And we heard this, and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Maneson of Cyprus, An early disciple with whom we should lodge. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so here we have a wrestling with what the Holy Spirit is revealing and showing to the Apostle Paul and to others around him. Now, there's some background in these chapters about Paul's resolve in the leading of the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 19 and verse 21, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go on to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so Paul had this desire, but also a spirit-led desire, to get to Jerusalem. But beforehand, and we'll see why in a little bit, he wanted to get through Macedonia and Achaia to see some of the churches that he had been a part of planting in those areas. Now, when you go on to chapter 20, he was talking with the Ephesian elders, which we saw last week, the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he said to them—I um, "If I can, I lost my spot in my verse completely. <laughs> All right, in verse, in verse 16 of chapter 20, first he said there, he said, Paul decided to sail past Ephesus, and he wanted to get to Jerusalem before Pentecost— Now, later on, he said to them, he said, listen, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." And so Paul had this resolve in the Holy Spirit. He, he felt a leading of the Holy Spirit clearly to go through Macedonia and Achaia and then make his way to Jerusalem, and he wanted to get there by Pentecost. That was his desire. He felt like God had told him, you're going to go to Rome, it's necessary for you to get to Rome, but he didn't know how all that was going to work out, and then we read that he felt constrained by the Spirit to get to Jerusalem, that that was where God was leading him, and he knew, and this is the amazing thing, is he's open in saying that everywhere he went and every city that he stepped into, God made clear to him, and the Spirit of God made clear to him that imprisonment and afflictions awaited him. And so, the other people that heard from the Spirit, then that we just read about in our passage for tonight, friends of his read and through the Spirit said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And then this prophet Agabus shows up, and can you imagine being in the room when this happened? Like, I've got some questions. How did he get Paul's belt? That's kind of a personal thing to have ended up with. Like, if any of you came into a room and suddenly had my belt, I'd have some concern. And, and he takes Paul's belt and binds himself up with it and ties himself up. Like, couldn't he just have said, like, the rest of the people around Paul, like, hey, Paul, you're going to get arrested in Jerusalem if you go there. The Spirit told me that. No, he has to show the object lesson to the apostle. And he ties himself up and says, this is what's going to happen to you. You will be bound and delivered over to the hands of the Gentiles. And so they're weeping over Paul. They're, they're coming to him, trying to convince him not to go. And, and I think some of the reason we have all the detail about the travel and where they went and how long it took and all that is because our author, Luke, was with him through all of this. He experienced it firsthand. And, and so he uses the word we all over. the We departed and went on our journey. And so he watched all of these things play out. I'm interested, too, to see that here they stay with Philip, the evangelist, and it also makes sense why Luke, a historian, had all kinds of details of Philip's ministry earlier in the book of Acts, because he spent some time at Philip's house hearing him retell those stories. And so this is part of Luke, and I think when they were in Jerusalem, this is all part of likely where Luke did all of his research for the gospel he wrote that bears his name and Acts. And so we're getting the details of this story as he was Paul's traveling companion. But as, So as I read this passage today, and as I was, as we've been been preparing for today, there are two questions that it raises for me. The first one is, what do we do when Christians disagree with how to interpret the leading and guidance of the Spirit? Very earnest, hearing clearly from God, but in complete disagreement, what do we do and how do we handle that? And the second one is somewhat related. What does it look like? How do we follow Jesus with resolve in the Holy Spirit? What does it mean for us to follow the leading of the Spirit in our own lives? And I think there's clues here from the ministry of Paul and through this section and in Jesus' life that can help us. And this is a critically important issue. It's a central concern for us to be able to address. I think often we get caught up in all kinds of other things and pressures and stressors and, and things that the church is facing and... And, and cultural shifts in things, and it's, that's, those are never the central issue that the Church of Jesus Christ faces. Francis Schaeffer said decades ago, the central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism, nor even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus that surrounds us. And now we could add Postmodernism, or materialistic consumerism or visceral sensualism or whatever else we want to add in there, all of these are dangerous, but they're not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ individually or corporately tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. So this is, why, this is a central question for us. What does it look like to follow Jesus, to do the work of God in the power of his Spirit rather than the power of our own flesh? And so we'll take on that question first, following Jesus led by the Spirit. And so... To look at this, I think it'd be important to look at the life of Jesus and some things that we see in Jesus because he was filled by the Spirit and also in the Apostle Paul. In Luke chapter 3, we read about the baptism of Jesus and that at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and that the voice of the Father came from the clouds saying, this is my, my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And so we have this beautiful Trinitarian event in Jesus' baptism, but from that point forward, throughout Luke's Gospel and throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus himself, fully man and fully God, but as fully man was led by the Holy Spirit in his life and ministry. And so Jesus is the most spirit-filled and spirit-led man who's ever lived, the most dependent man on God's presence that has ever existed. And we learn something even from where things start for him. Luke chapter 3, he's baptized, and the Spirit hovers on him and leads him, and the first thing we read, it goes into a genealogy, but then the first thing that happens in Jesus' life Is in chapter 4, it says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that's the river he was baptized in by his cousin John, he says he returned from the Jordan, led by the Spirit, It was in the wilderness. For forty days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, Jesus shows us that what it means to be led by the Spirit of God first is, is that it means that the Holy Spirit will lead us through suffering. And most of us don't want to hear this one. Now, we want to hear that God will get us through suffering when we encounter it, but at times the Spirit will lead us into and through suffering. He led Jesus into the wilderness, into the desert where he didn't eat for 40 days. Like, I'm trying to do keto right now, and that's hard enough. 40 days without food, and I would be an angry person. But it, Jesus is led there by the Spirit of God. And, and, and within that, we, later on, Jesus talks about the way that the Spirit is leading him, and in, in chapter 9, we read that, that he goes to his disciples and says, Hey, who do the crowds say I am? What's the rumors and the buzz that's circulating? And they say, Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, and some say that you're Elijah or a prophet of old. And, and he says, What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, this is the first time one of his disciples said, You are the Christ of God. You're the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the, the Holy One of God. And Jesus says to him, All right, don't tell anybody that. But he goes on to say, The Son of Man must Suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Later on, he set his face on Jerusalem, and and he kept telling his disciples this over and over and over again. This is the way it has to go. I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to be handed over. I have to suffer. I have to be killed, and I have to be raised on the third day. Jesus knew what his mission was. And then he extended that call to his disciples. This is what it means to be a Christian. Jesus wasn't vague and, and, and obscure about it. Jesus, he didn't come to set up a new religious system, an ethical system and morals that we could pursue in our lives. Jesus came in order to lay himself down because he knew that it was only through his death that we had hope for life. And so his call to his disciples right after that is then, if anyone's going to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus is saying that the spirit was leading him into suffering and to death and that to follow him was going to follow the spirit's leading on a similar pathway in our own lives that every one of us has to give up everything we are to place all of our trust in him. We don't like that. Most of us, if we're honest, drift more toward a soft prosperity theology. We, we tend, I tend to do this, that I tend to look at the circumstances in my life and what's going on in our church and what's going on in my family and look at those as barometers of God's pleasure with me. When things are comfortable and easy, when things are good, I, I tend to think, oh, well, this, is, this must be because God's happy with me and I'm performing well enough when things go badly when things don't go the way i plan them when, when things get hard for me then i have a tendency to say what am i god why are you doing this to me don't you see what i've done like i'm i'm pursuing you i've been i've been faithful to you i've been faithful to my wife i've been faithful to the things that i think you call me to and, and don't you see me and there's a place for lament there but if we're if we're honest i think it's easy to slide into, it, it, far too easy to slide into a transactional approach to our relationship with God. These, I have certain inputs that I put into this thing, and I expect certain outputs, and when it doesn't go the way I think it should, I think that God might be getting his plan wrong. And, and so we don't have, it's hard for us, that if that's our default, then we don't have a way to cope with suffering, and it makes suffering into punishment, which is a misalignment with Scripture. See, what the reality is, Paul Miller talks about this in a book he wrote called A Loving Life, that that there is a gap that each one of us experiences, that that our expectations and our hopes, the promises of God that we see and that we cling to exist on a plane, and then there's the reality of our experience, and that our experience doesn't seem to touch it. And so we don't know what to do with that gap. And so sometimes we get determined and start to say, I'm going to try to force my reality. And, you know, the power of positive thinking, I'm going I'm to pretend that I'm in that level of hope and expectation. Or sometimes we just fall into despair because we don't know what to do. But the Spirit of God will lead us into his presence in that gap. That is the desert place. And we see it all over Scripture. We see this is what the Apostle Paul was headed toward. He knew he was following the path of Jesus into suffering, that he was headed to Jerusalem and was willing to give his life just like Christ had given his own. And so the Spirit at times will lead us into and through suffering. Now, why would God do that? I think a few few things to notice here. In Luke chapter 4, Luke 4 and the temptation of Jesus, and I had somebody that just... Messed with my head on this passage recently, and I think they're right. Luke chapter 4 shows us that suffering in the desert, the wilderness, prepares us to face temptation. I've always read that passage upside down from what I just said. Jesus was in the desert for 40 days, it tells us that he was hungry. Fully man, experienced weakness and hunger and thirst. Of course he was hungry. It had been 40 days since he'd had food. And so Satan comes to him and says, hey, do you see that rock? Turn it into bread. And I've always read that, and I like to eat. That's no secret. (laughs) Follow my Instagram feed. All of you know that anyway. (laughs) And I can imagine, like for me, maybe bread was the most tempting thing for him there. For me, bread isn't necessarily it. But I can imagine... Satan coming to me after 40 days and saying, hey, you can turn that rock into chicken wings right now. And I think, oh my goodness. Or a plate of nachos. And I have always thought that what we are reading is that Satan was coming after Jesus at his weakest moment. Bringing all the temptation he could to bear. But I don't think that's true. Jesus had spent 40 days in intense communion with his father in the wilderness, pursuing God, led by the Holy Spirit. The wilderness prepared Jesus to meet Satan's temptations in the height of his strength. And some of you know this, that, that the suffering that you've experienced in your life, it's not that you want it, it's not that you're at a point of saying I, that you're glad that it's there, but, but you know that when we experience suffering, what suffering can do for us is it can, it can give us a reality check and get our priorities back, right? Give us clarified vision and unshackle our hearts from the idolatries of this world. And so the Spirit can lead us into and through suffering because it prepares us to face temptation. And it's part of our calling. Jesus knew this, and, and yet we think that following him will mean something different. And Paul knew that he had the calling to suffer as well. We read this in Acts chapter 9, when he was knocked off his horse by a blinding light on the road to Damascus, that, that Ananias... Was sent by Jesus to, to Paul and said, Go, he is my chosen instrument, or chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so suffering was part of the calling of Christ. It was part of the calling of the Apostle Paul, and it's part of what it means to follow Jesus. It doesn't, following Jesus doesn't mean our lives get easier. It means that as we walk through the hard things in the desert place and the gaps of this world, that we actually have hope that we can come out on the other side because we know that we have a Savior who's gone before us. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians later on that he says, I've been through all kinds of things. He says, I've been, I've been shipwrecked and beaten with rods and beaten with whips and, and I've been, I've been, I floated a day and a night at sea and I've, I've been you know, in danger on the road, in danger from robbers, in danger from the elements, in cold and exposure. And in all that, he carries anxieties over all the churches that he had pastored and planted. And he says in the midst of that, that he had, he had suffering that he faced, this thorn in the flesh that he dealt with. And it's in the depth of his own suffering in the darkness and, and of the valley of the shadow of death that the Apostle Paul finally was able to hear the voice of his Savior saying, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul says then, he says, because of that, I'm content with weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. In Philippians chapter 3, he He went on to say that he's counted everything in his life rubbish and and counted all loss. He's been willing to let go of everything. And he says, So that I might know Christ and the power of his resurrection. But Paul doesn't just long for resurrection. He says, And that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, what Paul had come to realize is that you cannot get to resurrection without suffering and death. And resurrection life is better than the life we experience now. So this is the hope of the gospel, is that Christ has gone before us, that he took on death itself for us, that he passed through it so that he might give us life and that we have hope in a Savior who will meet us in the darkest of valleys and bring us through to the other side. And so the Spirit of God will lead us into and through suffering. And second, the Spirit leads us to join God's mission. Remember, the kingdom of God is upside down from the kingdom of this world. And the the success of the kingdom of God is upside down from the success of the kingdom of this world. And so Jesus went to Jerusalem and he was arrested and put through illegal trials. And he was crucified outside the city as a common criminal. And, And in this he fulfilled God's mission. Paul, we'll see in the next few weeks, goes to Jerusalem and Agabus was right. The crazy guy with the belt got it, he was true. Said it, it, he was arrested, he was put through five trials, he would end up dying in house arrest, but it was that pathway that somehow brought him to Rome and fulfilled God's mission for him. And, and so that compulsion that he felt to get to Rome, that he must also see Rome in the end, came to its fruition. And, and so again, what we're going to see in the next chapters of this closing series in Acts is that he goes into Jerusalem and is arrested due to riots of the crowd there. And he's pulled before the Sanhedrin, which is the same group that had, that had killed Jesus. And he, there, he's cast out of the Sanhedrin with the same language, as they say to Paul, away with him. He's brought before Roman rulers, Felix and Festus and Agrippa, and, and he, does, he ends up being shipwrecked. And, and landing on Malta, and he, gets, he finally gets off the shipwreck after being a riot starting and him being arrested and him appealing to Caesar based on his Roman citizenship. So he gets on a boat, gets shipwrecked, and then he gets onto an island and gets bit by a snake. Like he, They're building a fire, and a viper comes out of the woodpile and attaches itself to Paul's hand, and the dude just shakes it off. Everybody, The, the people on the island were waiting for him to die, and he didn't die. But he, I mean, talk about not being able to catch a break. And all this got him to Rome in the most unlikely of ways. But again, what we learned and what Paul learned through all of this is that we can fix our hopes to the realities of a truer kingdom and that the Spirit of God will lead us to join God's mission and it usually won't look like what we've outlined in our own minds. The third thing we see in Paul's ministry is that it takes resolve to follow the Spirit's leading. People try to talk you out of it. And if God's mission really is upside down from the, from the mission of this world, then it won't make sense to people. Now, if you say to people, I think God's leading me to things that lead to greater comfort and opportunity and ease, then, then it may make more sense intuitively to the people around you. But, but we see the resolve here in our passage today from the Apostle Paul that he was going to follow the Spirit's leading, even with people that loved him and were close to him, pleading with him not to. And so in order to have that kind of resolve, you've, we're gonna ha- we have to have a rootedness in God's word. And that's the only way that we're going to be sustained through suffering and be able to understand what, what the gospel is and what God's mission is. And so Jesus, we see this, that when he was tempted by Satan, he was, he was able to fire off scripture at him in response. And Paul is devoted to the word of God. He He's, he's immersed in it. He's teaching it constantly and showing that all of Scripture points to Jesus as the Christ and, and able to show how God has worked over time. It was a major focus of Paul's work in ministry. I mean, to the point that we saw a few weeks ago that he w- just couldn't get enough teaching. And he would teach late into the night. To the, and Eutychus, the poor kid, fell out of a window because he was fell, falling asleep. And so the, a devotion to God's word will open us up to hear. The word of God and the message of God by the Spirit of God who will illuminate it. Now we do get a little bit of insight on why Paul was so bent on getting to Jerusalem. He got asked that directly by one of the Roman governors. And they said, Why why are you coming to this place if you knew this was gonna happen? And, and and so there were two reasons that he went. In Acts 24, we read that it was to deliver a collection. And so this lines up with Paul's ministry, that, that he was bringing an offering from the Gentile churches to the church in Jerusalem, and that's why he was, one of the reasons he was so bent on getting there. That was a major focus of, of Paul's ministry. And I think we see this from the beginning. So in Galatians chapter two we, we read about the start of Paul's ministry, and he went to Jerusalem and met with Peter and James and John to talk about Christ 's calling and what it would look like and if and, and, and what the gospel really was and how that interacted with the ceremonial laws of the old covenant. And, and they agreed together that circumcision and the old covenant were no longer necessary, that it was only faith in Christ. And so they, they agreed, they came to unity and agreement together. And it says in Galatians 2 that the only thing they asked Paul to do was to remember the poor. He says, that's the very thing I was eager to do. Now there, I don't think in context that it's just talking about Ambiguously, all of the poor people across the Roman Empire or the earth. There, there's, there's clues for us and throughout the New Testament that the Jerusalem church was a persecuted church. It was a church that was struggling to get by. And I, the request there was, that I really believe, they were saying, don't forget about us along the way. And Paul took that seriously. We see that in his ministry in, in Acts chapter 20 that, he, that he's saying to the elders of, from Ephesus to remember the weak and that it's more blessed to give than receive. And when you read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he, Paul talks a lot about this collection and that they were supposed to set aside money and, and be able to invest it into ministry in Jerusalem and how the money was going to be carried and how the systems were going to work financially. And so he was bringing a collection from the churches to support the church in Jerusalem. And that's one of the reasons that he was so resolved to get there. And, and that's related to the second reason. And the second reason is the unity of the church. And we're going to see this next week. Then when he got to Jerusalem, there was massive conflict that was brewing in the early church. It was dividing, and there was a sense of the church led by James and the church led by Paul, and the church led by James was arguing for a much more Jewish Christianity that was more tied to temple sacrifices in the Old Covenant. Paul was arguing for a freer Christianity, that it's only based on faith alone that we are saved, and that was leading to an ethnic and cultural clash within the early church. It was tearing apart at the seams. And so Paul and James, as two key leaders, were working together to try to bring unity for the church. And so for the Apostle Paul, we see as we walk through these passages that he wanted to get there with a collection from all the Gentile churches, bringing that support and to try to bring unity in a place where division was occurring. And so he, the, his ministry, the, his resolve, the, shows us that the leading of the Spirit will take resolve, but that res, what the Spirit will lead us toward is to provide for the needs of others and build unity where, where there is division. And when we look at the results of Paul's efforts to do those things, to provide for the needs of others and to build unity where there's division, we can see clearly that that work, if if we are going to follow the Spirit's leading into similar emphases in our lives, that it is going to be costly for us. Someone has said that the thing about being a bridge builder is that you get walked on by both sides. And so it's hard for the apostle. And it comes at great cost. But if we're filled by the Spirit... He's going to move us to bring unity to the church and to provide for other people's needs. Now, even within this, we can look at this and say, okay, actively, what does it take to follow Jesus? And whether you're a Christian or not, this is what Jesus calls us to, is that is he calls us to give ourselves up and, and to follow him, to take up our cross daily and enter into a life of costly discipleship, following him, making Jesus everything in our lives and letting go of everything else. And if we're, but we're promised that we'll be filled by the Spirit of God and that the Spirit will lead us through suffering and lead us to join God's mission, and it'll take resolve to follow that leading. But I think there still can be some ambiguity where some of you may even be thinking, like, that's, that's all fine. Those are good, actionable things, but what, is it, what does it actually mean to be filled by the Spirit? Like, we read in Acts, and it doesn't mean miraculous things like tongues and healing, and for some people, they have gifts along those lines, but I don't think it has to. Um, there, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, a Christian mystic, talked about, about being filled by the Spirit as being the kiss of God, our Father. Is that if we imagine that a father and a daughter are walking down a beach together, and as they're walking side by side, like the, the daughter will know cognitively that she has a dad and that her dad loves her. But you sense that differently if your dad reaches down and puts his arm around your shoulder. If the dad picks his daughter up, gives her a hug, and holds her close. In those moments, there is a tangible sense of the father's love for his child that's different than just knowing, oh, well, I know that my dad loves me. So Bernard was saying that that is when we are filled by the Spirit, it's the kiss of the Father, a sense of his presence and an overwhelming sense of his love for us. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, in his book, "Joy Unspeakable," talks about, about the filling of the Holy Spirit periodically through our lives, and he says that, that we have a tendency to get sidetracked on the miraculous, that the, the, the characteristic of the filling of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture throughout the New Testament and throughout if we look at Christian experience is that we are given a greater sense of assurance of our salvation. And so along the same lines, that when we're filled with the Spirit, we have a sense of God the Father's presence with us an assurance that we are his son or daughter. And so is my prayer today is that each of you would be filled by the Spirit of God and have that sense of his presence. All right. So with the time we've got left now, that's the first question. How do what does it look like to follow the leading of the Spirit? Um, the other question that is raised by our text tonight is: What do we do when Christians disagree? Should be able to solve this in fourteen minutes <laughs> together. Uh, I'm actually comforted reading the New Testament that when we see craziness go on between Christians now, we have a foundation we can look back at because the early church was not exempt from it, and it shows us that God can still work even through chaos among his people. Um, church, I've got I've to admit to you, I've been working with another church right now, not ours, um, that's in a really hard season with a lot of conflict, and it's, I'm emotionally drained from that. And it's hard to figure out how to navigate because people come with passion and earnestness and they really believe in what they're saying and still we can come to deep, deep disagreement together. And so here we see there's deep disagreement and weeping over that disagreement. And so there's some clues for us in this text of how do we handle it when Christians disagree with each other and even disagree on how to interpret what the Spirit is telling us. It shows us that us saying, hey, God told me something, and even having a clear sense that God is speaking to you isn't a trump card that makes it so that you can play that card and everybody has to just allow things to go that way. There's, there's a, some, there's, there are clues we see. And so just three actions for us in disagreement. First, move toward community, not away. Community is important, and I think for most of us, when things get tense, when things get hard, when things get awkward, our tendency can be withdrawal. We just pull back, sometimes physically, sometimes in contact and communication, sometimes just emotionally. We shut down and protect ourselves, and I, can, I, can, I know that there are times when I even have like the conscious thought toward people of, well that's fine, I'm just not going to give you anything on me anymore. you're not going to know what's really going on with me. I'm going to shut off my heart. That's not helpful in healing and restorative, and that kind it's a passive kind of Insidious betrayal of somebody that you can feel when that happens with people You can feel when somebody shuts you out like that and but it's it can be crazy making Community is important Jesus never abandoned his disciples and those guys were fools Like he told them oh we just read it in Luke he said hey That's good that you recognize that i'm the messiah the christ Yes god our father revealed that to you now here's what that means I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed in to the chief priests and the scribes and the teachers of the law, I'm going to suffer, they're going to kill me, and on the third day I'll be raised. He reminded them of that over and over and over and over again. And yet, they get to Jerusalem and Jesus says to them, okay, tonight is the night, everything's going to go down, I'm about to be handed into, over into the hands of men to suffer and die, but on the third day I'll be raised. And some of you aren't going to follow me through this. And Peter's like, no way. I'm going to follow you, and I'd even give my life for you. And Jesus goes, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And Peter couldn't fathom that. To the point then when, that when they get to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is praying then when the the band comes in to arrest him, which is everything Jesus had been saying to them for years leading up to it, Peter pulls out a sword and tries to start a war and misses the the high priest's servant's head and catches his ear. And Jesus has to stop everything and picks the ear up off the ground and puts it back in place. In in the midst of all of that, Jesus never abandoned his disciples. He washed Judas' feet And yet, when we get into a disagreement with each other, we close it out. Paul had deep, intimate friendships that are reflected here and throughout. And, 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 and this is the thing like they were weeping with him, they, but they went to the beach and accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we, we went on board the ship. And then the others were saying, Hey, with Agabus, we're saying, urging him not to go to Jerusalem. And, and Luke is part of it. And, and you, he was there for all of this. And you have to wonder if Luke is including these details, A, because he was there, and B, because he's like, we tried to tell you. Like, we told you what was going to happen. And, but even there, Paul maintained his friendships, and they maintained their love and friendship with him. And his friends were right. They were right in what they said was going to happen. They were right in discerning what the Spirit had revealed to them, that Paul would be arrested and handed to the Gentiles, but they were interpreting it differently. And it makes sense because it was out of their love for Paul that they were like, why are you walking into this trap? God's made it clear what's going to happen here. Why would you do that? And Paul there leaned in even with openness with them saying, what are you doing? You're breaking my heart. He said, But I'm, I'm ready to be arrested. I'm ready to give my life in Jerusalem. When we come to disagreement together, we've got to understand that two Christians, three Christians, five Christians may all hear accurately from the Spirit of God and may come to different conclusions on how to walk forward in that understanding. But let's not separate over that. Don't go into isolation over that, but lean in together to walk through that. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody can be together all the time. I mean, that's, we've seen that with Paul and Barnabas, that at a point they had to say, hey, we, just, we're, we have to go different ways, but even there, there was still a mutual love and respect and encouragement over, over each other in that moment. When Christians disagree, move toward community, not away. second, pray together. It is really hard to continue to hate someone and despise them when you spend time together before the face of a holy God. It's really hard to press on into gossip and slander about people when you're spending time with them in prayer. And we have all kinds of creative ways to engage gossip and slander. It's triangulation. We say, well, there's a conflict between me and this individual, and if I'm going to sort it out, then I've got to talk to this person. And so we go and talk to individual number three, and that person will go talk to another individual, and the, the spread will just continue to grow. And we do it in the name of, like, venting. I just really need to vent. Can I sit and vent to you? Would you ever have the courage to tell somebody, no, until you work this out, I've heard enough? No, because it feels good to be the safe place. It feels good to have somebody vent to you. We do it about, we say, I just wanna get counsel, and that's fine, sometimes you do need counsel and you need to get some help and you need to get help on how to navigate something. You don't need to get into the details of your assessment of someone's character in order to get that counsel. And you don't need counsel from 18 different people. We can get counsel and then follow the counsel we got. But if we're willing to come together and pray together, I mean, think about this. We have a tendency to think about disciplines like prayer as solely individual pursuits, but We see regularly, Jesus, yes, would withdraw on his own to pray, but regularly praying with the disciples. And again, even when they were letting him down, he's in Gethsemane, sweating like drops of blood, suffering in anguish over what he was facing, pleading with God the Father, if there's any way you can take this cup from me, please take it. And it's even in the midst of that that he's he's saying to his disciples, please pray with me. And you know what they did? Snoozed. They slept. Three times, Jesus went back and said, hey, please pray with me, stay up with me. And they kept falling asleep, but he was was pursuing them in prayer. Paul here, they they prayed together even when they were in disagreement because they were moving toward each other, not away. And finally, third, live in freedom. We are under the authority of Scripture, if you're a follower of Jesus, and under Christ himself. And, and there are things that we need to address and sin that is, needs to be called sin. We need to be clear where Scripture is clear and not be shy about it. We will stand under the authority of Jesus and his word. And, and within that, there are calls within Scripture for the church to have a special role in coming alongside each other. Those who are, of you who are more spiritual will be willing to address issues within somebody's life. But we need to be very careful that we don't draw lines that the Bible doesn't draw. There are plenty of things that we, can, we might be in disagreement with and not be able to come to clarity on together. And there are plenty of decisions in our lives that we wish would be clearer too, where we wish that God would make his will clearer. We wish that maybe he even had a choice for us, and we can get paralyzed at times. Like I can remember when I was single actually saying to somebody, like, I wish... That God would just have one of those planes with a banner and it would fly by with the person's name that I can go ask to marry me. And it never happened. And I've never heard of anything quite like that happening for somebody. Relationships are a lot more complicated than that. And I think my image of marriage, even when I got married, because I was 20, I was a child. And my image of marriage was not, I get to spend the rest of my life laying myself down and self-sacrificing to see this individual flourish. No, my, it was like, I really like her, and I feel good when we're together. <laughs> but God has brought me into a relationship that is more self-sacrificial than I realized, um, there are plenty of decisions that we want God's will for our lives, whether it's relationships or school choices or career paths or what we're going to do and invest our lives into. And, and I think at times we can get hung up on, like there's only one choice that we can make, and if, as if God is, is waiting for us to make the wrong choice to, to punish us for that, or that we're going to place ourselves outside of his will. Listen to me. God's sovereignty is not threatened by our freedom. He's not scared to give us real choices and real responsibility in our lives. It's how he set this place up. And believing in God's sovereignty should only give us greater freedom in our lives, not freedom towards sin and rebellion. Paul addresses that in his book to the Romans where he says, you know, some of you guys have taken this and said, hey, I'm going to sin all the more because then I can say, look at all the grace that's abounding. He says, no. But we have freedom in our lives to live and, 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 and greater freedom to make choices and decisions in our lives and to pursue love. And, and it means that we are going to come down differently in all kinds of issues and we can still have unity and love. That the Spirit will never lead us toward disunity and defamation of God's people or His church. And whenever you come to a point where you really believe that defaming and and slandering, one who bears the image and likeness of God is the Holy Spirit's call on you, you've got to hear that you might be hearing from us, Spirit, but it is not God's Spirit. The church already has an accuser. We don't need to help him along the way. Too often, earnest people claiming the Spirit's leading and end up managing other people's sanctification now listen, again, if there's sin, call it sin, but it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, and we will not submit ourselves to yokes of slavery, of man-made rules. In Romans 14, Paul says he's talking about issues of meat or vegetables and what people eat, and people are dividing in the church over those kinds of things, and, and there are all kinds of ways that we, can, that we could divide, church. There's, we come in here from a different backgrounds, different cultures, different regions, different political viewpoints. We come together, and there's, there's tons of ways that we could fight with each other. Romans 14, Paul's encouragement is, hey, we're all going to stand before a righteous judge in the end. He's proven this because Jesus was raised from death to life. We're going to face him. Let's find the grace of God in our brothers' and sisters' lives and allow Jesus to be their judge. Tony Evans, Dr. Tony Evans said, people from different backgrounds may not have a natural affinity. But when the word of God is treated right and the Holy Spirit is allowed to engage, it can bring together things and people, backgrounds, histories, races, colors, and cultures and hold them together in a way that, uh, that natural affinity may not be able to do. And so look at the posture that they took toward each other in the end here. Saying that you're gonna be delivered over. Paul said, Why what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but to even to die for the name of Jesus. And Luke says, Since he wouldn't be persuaded, we ceased. And they said, Let the will of the Lord be done. We can plead with each other, pray with each other, pursue each other, disagree with each other, and still stand with each other and say to each other, hey, I love you, let God's will be done in your life, in our city, in our church. The church of Jesus Christ has promised that the Spirit of God resides within us, that we are a Spirit-filled people. If you're not a Christian, this this is what What Christians are called to, and I know that they haven't reflected it well, and that in in the church there's been all kinds of division in ways that this hasn't been lived out, but the call to us who are in the church today is let's resolve to live spirit-led lives, joining God in his work, providing for the needs of others, building unity where there's division, being willing to be the bridge builder that gets walked on, and it will come at great cost if we engage in that work. The Spirit will lead us into and through suffering to join God on His mission. And when we disagree, we can move toward each other and pray together and live in freedom alongside of each other. Um, Let's pray and ask God to do it. Father, we're asking for You to do something that we cannot do. Only your spirit can can bring unity and make enemies family. And so would you help us today to be willing to lay ourselves down in order to actually be able to follow Jesus and be able to care for and love each other? Would you help us to see the beauty of self-sacrificial love? to count all things as rubbish and as as a loss for the sake of Christ. Father, I, I plead that your Spirit would move in the hearts of those who are here who are not walking with Jesus. Breathe life and hope and open their eyes to see him clearly. Father, I pray for those who are in a season of suffering and they just feel like they've been beaten down and don't know if they can keep getting back up. You know their hurt, you know their pain, you know their needs. And Father, I pray that by your spirit that you would bring your presence, that they would feel your love and care and warmth and comfort. Father, would you fill this church, the individuals who are part of it, and us as a church family, with your Spirit to engage in your work in this place. Keep the unity of the Spirit and bond of peace in our hearts towards each other. And move in power. Give us a sense of your presence and power in our midst. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.